I'm excited to talk about Verdi. Uh, I have always felt a special affinity to Verdi. Um, one time in Miami, 25 years ago, I was working in Miami Opera, and they wanted to do a special Verdi evening. So I thought, this is great. And somebody came up with the idea that they would dress me as Verdi. And, <laughs> and that was fine from the shoulders down. But then they thought I needed the wig and the mustache and the beard. So I was sitting at the piano for a couple hours while everybody, fortunately, was getting drunker and drunker. So they didn't really <laughs> see what was happening. But after about an hour, my beard started to come off. And by the end, it was all sort of hanging on by one or two hairs. And uh, it was a pretty sorry sight for, for Verdi lovers. Anyway, tonight, with no costume, I think I feel much more comfortable telling you all about Verdi, whose 200th birthday was less than a week ago. So that's one of the many reasons that we're celebrating him tonight. Verdi was influential in a way that many composers, however great, do not achieve. Verdi was not born an Italian. Did you know that? Verdi was born a Frenchman. Why? Because Italy at the time wasn't Italy. It was owned by the Austrians and the French. So he was baptized Joseph Verdi, even though we all know he's Giuseppe Verdi, right? So Verdi grew up in an environment where all of the would-be Italians could think of nothing but when they would regain the rule of their own country, when they could drive out the French and drive out the Austrians and have Italy to themselves. Now, young Verdi was somewhat talented on the piano and liked to compose, but he was no prodigy. And by the time he was a teenager, he had a following in his local town of Busetto. Actually, he was born in Le Roncole, which is a tiny village outside of Busetto. But in Busetto, uh, people knew Verdi, they thought well of Verdi, but when he went to audition for the Milan Conservatory, he was bumped out on his ear and they said, you can't play the piano, you don't understand counterpoint, don't bother to reapply. So he went back to Busetto. And there was a fellow in Busetto by the name of Antonio Barezzi. Now Antonio Barezzi thought a lot of Verdi's talent and said, I will subsidize any lessons you wish to take. And in exchange, Verdi gave lessons to Antonio Barezzi's daughter, Margherita. They fell in love, and several years later, they married. So young Verdi and his patron's daughter, Margherita, began to have a family. They had a daughter, and the next year they had a son. And Verdi got his first break. He was offered a contract to write an opera called Oberto. Now, Oberto was a complete failure, but the impresario Merelli, Bartolomeo Merelli, thought Verdi is talented. I'm going to give him another chance. So Verdi wrote another opera called Un Giorno di Regno, which was, in fact, a comedy. And during the time that this comedy was being produced, his wife and his two children died. His wife died of encephalitis. Children didn't make it you know, half the time anyway, in 1833. So uh, Verdi decided he would give up the theater forever and never write another note of music. Merelli, the impresario who had commissioned him to write Oberto and Un Giorno di Regno, 
said, I need to have you look at one last libretto. And Verdi refused and refused. So finally, Merelli pushed this thing onto Verdi's hands, and Verdi took it home without looking at it and put it on a table. But at some point over the following weeks, in his deepest, blackest depression, he opened this libretto. And it was by Temistocle Solera. It was a libretto of Nabucco, Italian for Nebuchadnezzar. And Nabucco, the story of the Israelites exiled from their homeland and wanting nothing more than to have their own homeland, struck naturally a very deep chord with Verdi for two reasons. One, he was a very patriotic man and he wanted to tell the story of the Italians who wanted their own homeland. Two, if it had actually been a story about Italians in their own homeland, it could never have been produced on the stage in a country ruled by the French and the Austrians. So it was removed by several millennia from Verdi's actual lifetime, which meant it could go past the censor. And the censorship laws at this time were very strict. So Verdi was always conscious what is permissible on the stage in the middle of this Nabucco, with all of its warlike choruses and prayers and things that were uh, fairly typical in Italian opera, he has a chorus called Va Pensiero, Go Thoughts, Sulali Dorate, on golden wings, Va ti posa sui clivi, sui colli, uh, Go to the slopes and the hills, Ovi olezzano tepido ai molli, laure dolci del suol natal. Where sweet, beautiful scents of our native land are. So this whole chorus is about our native land. We want to have a native land. I suspect that many of you have heard this music at some time. A pensiero sull'ali That familiar? Yes. Shall we all sing it together? <laughs> um, I, well, why not? In 2009, the Italian government actually proposed that this be the Italian national anthem. Even though it's clearly making references to the River Jordan and things that aren't really in Italy, but spiritually, the Italians own this, this chorus. And um, so you can sing on La La La. But the first words are va pensiero. Uh, here, let's all. <laughs> va pensiero.
In 2011, Riccardo Muti was conducting a performance of Nabucco, and he knew that the Italian audience was in the palm of his hand while this chorus was going on. So he stopped in the middle of it, and he turned around to the audience and he said, and if you allow the government to continue cutting our subsidies, you will not. I'm not kidding. It worked. You've got to know your audience and know what they love. So Va Pensiero put Verdi on the map. The number of people in Milano at this time was 83,000, and the number of people that saw the first 57 performances or whatever, whatever it ran were more than the number of people living in all of Milano, every man, woman, and child. So you've got to get, this was the, the rock concert of the day. Uh, people going to Nabucco. Now, Verdi, of course, felt suddenly that he could write other operas. And uh, he, he wrote them at a furious rate. Um, I would say for the next 15 years, he wrote one opera every single year. And the incredible thing is that Verdi develops slowly, but really transforms as a composer. Because while Va Pensiero has deep emotional resonance, you would not say that it's uh, an adventurous piece of music. And as he continues to write these operas, some of which we never hear today, uh, you know, I Masnadieri and I Lombardi and uh, I Due Foscari and so forth, uh, he gets stronger and stronger. But he remains very much a composer of his day. He, unlike his contemporary, Richard Wagner, born in the same year, Verdi is not trying to break the molds in the uh, very dynamic, aggressive way that Richard Wagner was. Verdi took the form of opera and infused it perhaps with more genuine humanity than any other composer. Verdi's personal beliefs were simple and truly Catholic. He was not a religious man, but his adoration of women his feeling that the brotherhood of humanity should come before uh, other considerations, uh, his distaste for hypocrisy. Uh, he, he was a very likable person, and the, the things that he puts across in his operas are the person that he, Verdi, really was. Uh, the typical opera that I'm trying to describe has a form like this. There are four principal characters, a soprano, a mezzo-soprano, a tenor, and a bass or a baritone. And they have a succession of arias where they sing alone, which is always going to follow this form. There's going to be a slow part, some tiny bit of action will happen, and that will motivate a fast part. And, and this will take 15 minutes. So <laughs> opera is not moving fast. But, you know, in the 1840s, nobody's in a hurry, so it's okay. <laughs> and so let's take his opera, Ernani. Uh, the, the singer first sings about her love. Ernani, Ernani, volami, che la diletta she does it better than that, but she, she gets up there. And then something occurs, and uh, she, she sings the same thing, which is how much she loves Ernani, but uh, she goes, Tutto sprezzo che Ernani, And in this part, she shows off her agility. 
So this traditional structure of a cavatina, a slow piece in which the singer shows how beautifully they can sing, how legato, how movingly, is followed by a cabaletta, which means a little horse. <laughs> so it's like the, they suddenly have this movement and they show off their agility. So it's like figure skating, you know, there's the part where you do, uh, do, do you all notice I'm on two good feet this week? Um, th there's the part where they show off their, their grace, and then there's the part where they jump and spin and do all that. So opera is like the Olympics, except the music is better. So there was always this format, and Verdi followed it until he decided that he wanted to set an opera by his favorite dramatist of all times, who was William Shakespeare. So Verdi breaks with tradition, first of all, because he chooses the play Macbeth. Of course, Italians can't say, uh, so it's called Macbetto. Okay, so he writes Macbetto, and in Macbetto, there is no love story, right? Think about it. When, when Lady Macbeth sings, she is not singing love songs. <laughs> I don't know if I can remember any of them, but like she sings, um, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here and make me from the toe to the crown top full of direst cruelty. Uh, take my mother's milk for gall, you murdering ministers, right? So no love duets, no love arias, no love nothing. But Verdi takes this and begins to move away from the forms that exist in opera so well to express love. And uh, he gives her a kind of crazed, uh, demonic music. Or tutti sorgete ministri infernali che il sangue imbrate you have to imagine a real singer doing this. But uh, the, the range of this to be leaping up to these high notes and coming up and down with this very ferocious kind of coloratura characterizes Lady Macbeth. Now, in Shakespeare, Macbeth is a big part, and Lady Macbeth has only a quarter as many lines. But in Shakespeare, women's parts were played by boys. And Shakespeare very cleverly figured out how to make a part tell without having lots and lots to say. But in opera, that all gets turned around. Poor old Macbeth doesn't nearly have the wonderful music to sing that Lady Macbeth does. Verdi clearly uses her as the driving force who propels Macbeth into that murder. So Verdi's Macbeth was a big success, and he loved using orchestral effects to suggest the witches. Now, in Shakespeare, as you know, there are three witches. In Verdi's Macbetto, there's a whole chorus of witches whom he describes as bearded women. Um, and they, they have this sort of, uh, if you can imagine a woodwind sounding a little bit uh, nasal. So all this kind of laughing, evil laughing. Uh, he uses the orchestra to color in a way that hasn't been done before. So Macbetto is a real watershed for Verdi. <laughs>
Even in Macbetto, however, and this is a departure from Shakespeare, Verdi wants his audience to know that he has not forgotten the struggle for a united Italy. So, <laughs> towards the end, there's a chorus of exiled Scotsmen singing about how they miss haggis, I don't know, how they miss home. And, and the, the whole canon of Verdi's early works is about people who have lost their country singing for their country. Now, real time, Italians do try to overtake the French and the Austrians by force. This is, of course, an abject failure. And Verdi, along with people in the government, realizes that the, the, the sacrifice that is necessary will cost the Italians a lot, but ultimately is the only path to autonomy. So he begins to preach the gospel of sacrifice, but he's an opera composer, so he does it through his operas. And he writes three great operas in 1851, 52, and 53 that all are about sacrifice. All right, Il Trovatore, in many people's minds, has one of the silliest plots of any opera ever written. But you have to remember that in the middle of the 19th century, people were not as uh, dependent upon credibility as we are now. Now we really have to believe something to get involved in it. At that time, these stories about revenge and accidental murder and uh, you know, all the kinds of absurd things that happen in some of these stories uh, were, were quite accepted. And they provide Verdi with a vehicle for the most emotional music because the situations are so extreme. If I was ever in doubt that this really is effective, it, all doubt was dispelled when I conducted Il Trovatore in Italy oh, 14 years ago in Siena uh, on the public piazza. There were 3,500 folding chairs set up, all filled with 3,500 Italians. And the moment Il Trovatore began, they began to sing along <laughs> from the beginning to the end with every part, soprano, mezzo, tenor, bass, orchestra alone, they were singing. And they were crying and they were completely involved because Il Trovatore is like a national treasure to, to Italians. And uh, you know every character has the full range of emotion. The, the heroine, Leonora, can sing um, Amor sulla rose Or if she's excited I shouldn't even be trying this actually sings all that, okay? It's so wonderful. But she conveys this almost manic excitement. Uh, the man who loves her, the Count di Luna, when he's simpering about his romantic feelings, is singing, Il vale del suo sorriso. Okay? But as soon as he gets angry, which happens very easily, he's... Uh, Amor 
rather foolishly, the lovers are, are meanwhile singing. We're so happy together, we don't care that you're furious. And of course, his, his word is enough to make them live or die, so it's really an example of how operatic people don't think. They just go with whatever emotion they're feeling, which means that most of these operas end in death, but they're tremendously exciting because you just watch these people like trains about to crash. You know, you, you see it's gonna happen. And, and Verdi loves this. So in this opera, at the end, Leonora uh, is forced to either marry the count so that Manrico, her lover, can be free. I didn't mention to you that her lover is actually the brother of the other lover, but um, <laughs> nobody knows this because the witch that abducted him at birth mistakenly burned her own child instead of the one she wanted to. So once you've accepted that basic fact about Il Trovatore, you can understand why these two brothers are fighting each other to the death. And Leonora, in order to save the one that she doesn't know is the other one's brother, uh, takes poison and dies. So sacrifice, the point is sacrifice. And meanwhile, there's this great story with a witch thrown in for good measure. You've heard this. Stride la Um, the daughter of the witch who mistakenly, uh, well, no, the, the, she's the daughter of the witch who abducted the, the brother who's now a great tenor, but nobody knows who he is. <laughs> and this tenor is so loyal to his mother that just as he's about to finally get to be with the woman that he loves, Leonora, somebody comes in and says, uh, your mother has been taken prisoner by De Luna and his men, and he sings the... Uh, higher and higher and pretty soon he's screaming for a long time on a very high note and everybody in the audience starts rising out of their seats and it's fantastic. So who cares about the story of Il Trovatore, really? Now, some of the other sacrifice operas are more believable. The second one, Rigoletto, Verdi said to the end of his life was his favorite of his own operas. Rigoletto is taken from a play by Victor Hugo called Le Roi S'Amuse, the king diverts himself. But you couldn't write a play that had a French king with a murder attempt in a country that was, remember, owned partly by the French. So Verdi relocates the entire story to something that is quite fictitious, and he creates the Duke of Mantua. So there was no Duke of Mantua. But the Duke of Mantua in this opera is an incredible libertine, and he has in his employment a court gesture named Rigoletto, which in Italian means little laugh. So Rigoletto is a hunchbacked jester who is cruel to everybody in the court of the Duke of Mantua because that's his job. And the only time we see him kind and loving is when he's with his daughter, Gilda, because he knows how decadent the court is, he makes sure that nobody in the court even knows about Gilda. They've never seen Gilda. 
But unfortunately, Gilda is a teenage girl, which means that he can't control her. So <laughs> he's at work at the Duke of Mantua's palace, and Gilda somehow bribes the serving woman to let her go out. And while she's out, the Duke sees her and decides that she's a yummy morsel, and he's going to show up at her doorstep and say, I'm a poor student named Gualtier Malde, and I am so in love with you. And she's a teenage girl, so she believes this completely. And the next thing you know, they're singing this fabulous Verdi love duet. And um, the next thing you know, because the Count, um, the Duke, excuse me, the Duke has, has raped the daughter of the Count Ceprano, the Count Ceprano decides that they're going to go and abduct Gilda. And this happens right under Rigoletto's nose. They trick Rigoletto. So this horrible tragedy happens. And Gilda, uh, toward the end of the opera, although she should despise the Duke, has the opportunity to save his life because Rigoletto has hired a professional assassin who's going to kill the Duke. But Gilda instead throws her body into the situation where the Duke is going to be murdered so that he can be saved. So we might argue with whether that was a wise choice on her part, <laughs> but you cannot argue with the fact that it's powerfully an emotional statement about sacrifice and how if you love something, right or wrong, you will give your life for it. And this is what Verdi used his platform as the greatest opera composer in Italy to say to his audiences over and over and over. Now, Verdi was really smart. He knew that he could write very atmospheric music and orchestrally complex music, and he loved counterpoint. In spite of the fact that the people at the Milan Conservatory said he couldn't do counterpoint, he had figured it out, and he started by writing fugues. I'm not making this up. He wrote fugues every morning before breakfast. So he became a great contrapuntalist. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? Where you have several melodic lines that are independently uh, melodies, but together they form a harmonious whole. So Verdi became this great contrapuntalist. And uh, he was sophisticated, and yet he knew if he wanted everybody in Italy to want to go see Rigoletto over and over, he needed to have a tune in there that everybody would sing. And he didn't want everybody to know it before the opening night. So the tenor didn't get the music until the morning of the opening <laughs> night. So in the rehearsals, the tenor would get to that point, and Verdi would say, OK, here's where the song will be, but I can't tell you what it is yet. So they worked out everything else. Verdi ran all of his own rehearsals. but He must have been a tireless person. He's always going from Paris to Milano to Rome. And uh, so I bet some of you can guess what this tune was. And you're all going to sing it. La donna è molle, qual piuma il vento, muta d'accento e di pensiero, sempre un amabile, leggiadro viso, piando il riso. La donna è mobile, quando il vento muta da cento e pensiero. E di 
he pensier. So when he sings this song, when the Duke sings this song for the first time, he is just expressing his feelings about women. He says, women are fickle like a feather in the wind, and uh, whether they're laughing or crying, you can bet that they're pulling one over on you. So all the, all the words are like this. And uh, at the end of the opera, when Rigoletto goes to the assassin, says, I've paid you, give me the corpse of the duke so that I can throw him in the river, uh, the assassin gives him the corpse, of course, not of the duke, and uh, Rigoletto carries it down to the river, and just as he's gloating, he hears from the distance, La donna immobile, and he knows something has gone horribly wrong, and he looks inside the burlap sack, and there's his daughter, Gilda, who has just enough in her to sing 15 minutes of beautiful duet, <laughs> to sing farewell to her father, and it's fabulous. So... I have to tell you, you've noticed that I am the furthest thing from a singer, but I have actually had the opportunity to sing the Duke's part not once, but twice in public um, under somewhat similar circumstances. The first time, Jinnah was singing Gilda, and may I say, she was an absolutely fabulous Gilda. The audience was riveted. And at the end, Rigoletto standing there with his foot on the corpse, and... Uh, the orchestra and I are ready, and nothing's coming. So I thought, it's got to be me. So I sang, La Donne Mobile, just like that. You know, was, I, and Rigoletto looked horror-stricken, as he should have, but for other reasons, perhaps. So we don't know exactly what happened. But anyway, I thought, surely that could never happen again. It's like lightning striking. And then I was on tour several years later with a Bulgarian orchestra and chorus, and we were doing Italian operas all over Italy, Nabucco and Aida and Tosca and, and Rigoletto. But this particular night in Liguria, we were doing a potpourri program where we did a chorus of this and a duet from that and a quartet from that. And um, the, the tenor that evening was a fellow from Palermo. We had never had him before, but he was one of the stars of the evening. So the stars were this tenor, uh, the baritone and the soprano, who typically were our Rigoletto and our Gilda. And I said, look, here's what we'll do. For our encore at the end, we will sing the final scene of Rigoletto, and uh, you'll sing La Donna Immobile from offstage, which everybody loves, because it's La Donna Immobile. And, uh, you know, there'll be this moving duet between father and daughter on stage. Well, it came to that point, and I looked over at him, and he, being a Sicilian, went, that. I had to sing it again. Can you believe it? And this time, the entire audience was Italians. But they loved it because it was, it was such an Italian thing for him to do and for me to do. <laughs> he said, you expected me to come and sing off stage and the colleagues, they are on the stage? So my mistake, you know, how could I have known? Anyway, I have gotten to sing the Duke on several occasions. <laughs> in the same glorious way that you have heard just now. <laughs> so now that I've set the bar really low, we are all going to sing La Donne Mobile, okay? <laughs> you don't need to, la 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 is fine, but La Donne Immobile. La Donne Immobile. Okay, that'll be good enough. <laughs> Here we go. La Donne Immobile, qual più va il vento, 
Now, even if you're singing on ah, you sing the first two phrases really loud and the next two phrases really soft, okay? <laughs> Especially the really loud part. We've got really soft down, I think. Okay. <laughs> La donna immobile, qual piuma il vento. And if you really want to be Italian, you slide up after the three repeated notes to the next note. You go, La donna immobile, qual piuma il vento. Okay. You're going to love this. Here we go. Loud again. that Italians do not feel that there is a distinction between the performers and the audience. So when you are seeing an opera at La Scala or at, at Roma or anywhere like that, if you choose to sing along, you will only be mistaken for one of the locals. And it doesn't matter how you sing. You just participate. And that's what's so fabulous about Italian opera. Clearly, in Germany, uh, as great as Wagner's operas are, nobody sings along. You can't. And that is part of the greatness of Verdi. So, the sacrifice operas uh, culminate with an opera that meant more to Verdi than just sacrifice. I told you that Verdi's first wife, Margareta Baresi, died when uh, she was, gosh, only 23. So, uh, he had a long-time affair with a woman named Giuseppina Streponi. She starred in some of his operas. And she was a great diva in Europe. Uh, she was a little older than he, and she was already supporting two illegitimate children and her parents. So she had a lot of things going on, and her career burned out because she burned out. But uh, she was an extraordinary musician, an extraordinary woman, and she had gotten into the Milan Conservatory. <laughs> so, so whenever Verdi was writing something, she felt very comfortable saying, I think here you make the, you know. So uh, when we hear melodies by Verdi that were composed for the soprano voice, we can guess that Giuseppina Streponi was probably uh, an overseer in the process. So they were living together in Busetto, and they weren't married. And Antonio Barezzi, if you remember from 20 minutes ago, the father of Verdi's first wife, who had been his patron, was shocked at this and wrote Verdi a letter. He loved Verdi, but he said, you are creating a scandal and bringing a bad name to our family. And Verdi wrote a courteous letter back to him explaining that Giuseppina Streponi had lived an incredible life and deserved nothing but the highest respect from everybody and that what she and Verdi did was really nobody else's business. But Verdi did more than that. He wrote an opera about it. <laughs> That's what you do when you're a great opera composer. So he finds a story by, um, who wrote? Uh, Dumas. Dumas Fils, Alexandre Dumas, not the one who wrote The Three Musketeers, but his son. So the son of The Three Musketeers author had, uh, had 
an affair with Marguerite Gautier, a famous courtesan, and had written a wonderful play about it, La Dame aux Camélias, The Lady of the Camellias. And Verdi turns this opera, turns this play into an opera, La Traviata. Now, La Traviata means the woman who has wandered from the path, or even you could translate it as who has been sort of made to wander from the path. And in La Traviata, Verdi, in a distant way, the way he distantly related the Israelites to the present day, his present day Italians, uh, in a distant way tells the story of Giuseppina Streponi, because Violetta, the protagonist of La Traviata, in every way is the most appealing character and the one most ready to make sacrifice. So here's how Verdi sets it up. He begins uh, with a short overture that lets us know the opera will not have a happy ending. This gives way to a very weak and almost melancholy tune. Remember that tune, you'll hear it again. Because all of Verdi's overtures, when he writes them, bring thematic material to our attention that we're going to hear developed through the opera. So Violetta is now having a party. At the opening of the opera, she's having a party. And uh, Verdi paints party music. We know it's a great party. But <laughs> we see that Violetta occasionally can't catch her breath. We see that Violetta is not in the best of health. And as the story unfolds, it turns out she's been very sick for a year. Her friend, Gastone, introduces her to a young man named Alfredo and says, Alfredo went to see you every day when you were sick. Now, Violetta is a kept woman. She's a courtesan. She's a demi-mondaine. And the man who's supposed to be keeping her, the Baron Dufol, never went to see her, which her friend Flora is quick to point out to the Baron, which only makes the Baron dislike Alfredo more. So Alfredo, when everybody else goes to have some more champagne, follows Violetta to see how she's feeling because he, unlike the many men who have kept her, is genuinely in love with her. And this is the core of the story. He sings about his love for her. Di quell'amor, quell'amor che palpito dell'universo, dell'universo intero, misterioso. And Violetta at first laughs at him and tries to brush him off, but she can tell that he is quite sincere. And finally, she says, take my camellia and come back when it is wilted. And he says, that's tomorrow. 
And she says, all right, come back tomorrow. <laughs> so off he goes, the happiest man in Paris. And Violetta is alone and thinks about this. And uh, she says, could this be the person that I've always dreamed about? And she allows herself to go into the fantasy of what it would be like to be a woman who loved and was loved in return and could have a normal life instead of being a 23-year-old tubercular courtesan who has virtually no hope of any kind of life at all. Remember in Il Trovatore, I was showing you the contrasts that Verdi painted between the introspective, loving, lyrical side of a character and the uh, manic side of a character. So it is with Violetta. Oh, forse lui Soling on the Soling on the She sings it much higher than that, actually. <laughs> but when she realizes what she's saying and that she's being completely impractical and unrealistic, she says, no, this is craziness. I must go back to the only life I know, the only life that I'm allowed to have. And that is this whirl of pleasure that will surround me every day until it kills me. So uh, you sing along with this, I'm sure you know. Sempre libera de gio folleggiare di gioia in gioia Poche scorre il viver mio pei sentieri per But in the middle of singing all this, she hears Alfredo singing his love song out on the street. Di quell'amor, quell'amore che palpita and she's torn between these two possibilities. Could I really be loved? Well, at the beginning of the second act, you find out the answer. Because she and Alfredo are living in a bunch of cubist gray blocks. No, they're living, <laughs> depends on the production you see. They are living in the country, in a beautiful country house, and Alfredo is completely devoted to Violetta, and uh, we hear him singing about how she has completely transformed his life. And uh, um, Violetta, for her part, is also completely happy. So Verdi has set up this domestic bliss for us. And then the whole point of the opera arrives in a top hat. And that is the respectable Antonio Barezzi, or in this opera, Giorgio Germont who says to Violetta very sensibly, you will never be able to continue this relationship when all of society is against you. You will never be able to have a long and loving relationship with somebody when you can't be really married because you know how men are. You're not going to be gorgeous for your whole life. And Well, of course she is, but that's another story. Uh, we... we sympathize with Germont because Verdi never paints his characters two-dimensionally. Um, all right, I'm going to try to do something. I'm going to be both Giorgio Germont, Alfredo's father, and, and Violetta, okay? Something like this happens. We hear this music of uh, respectability and, and a somewhat aggressive uh, man who knows that he commands everyone. <laughs> Ma 
damigella Valerie. And she says, son io, d'Alfredo il padre in me vedete. I'm Alfredo's father. Si dell'incauta che o ruina corre ammagliato da voi. He says of that, un, that incautious youth who runs to ruin, assisted by you. And she says, I am a woman in my own house. I would ask you to leave more for your sake than for my own. And he is struck by her manners and breeding. But he says, nevertheless, and she says, no, you're wrong. It's not Alfredo's money that's paid for this. It's my money that's paid for this. And at this point, the father has to start backtracking and thinking how he can convince uh, Violetta that she must leave Alfredo. And of course, he's already seen that she's a compassionate person, so he sings about his own daughter. Ora siccome un angelo, Dio mi die una figlia, se Alfredo diega riedere in seno alla famiglia. God gave me a pure and beautiful daughter, and if Alfredo doesn't come back into the bosom of his family, the man who my daughter is to marry will never be able to marry him because of the shame that Alfredo brings to us. So, if you want to save this person's life and allow her the life which, look, you can never have anyway, do the right thing and leave Alfredo. And Violetta says, oh, I see, you want me to, to separate from him for a certain period of time. And Germont says, no. And Violetta gets the whole thing and says, oh, you want me to leave him forever? I can't do that. And she says, uh, you don't know what uh, uh, a disease eats my whole body. I'm incapable of living without Alfredo. Now, just saying the words doesn't do much for you. But uh, when she's singing this... Um, she sings, No, no, mai, non sapete quali affetto vivo immenso, mardo in petto, che ne amici, né parenti, io non conto tra i viventi, e che Alfredo m'ha giurato che in lui tutto troverò. Non sapete che colpita da tromorbo è la mia vita, e ne preso fine vero che io mi separi d'Alfredo. Il supplizio, il supplizio, il supplizio si è spietato. Again, you hear how Verdi is able to paint through music the mania of his characters when they become hysterical. Now, we know about tuberculars that they are part of the disease is that when they're coughing, they're hardly able to make a sound, but when they're, when they're uh, seized by the, the other side of it, they become, uh, m this sort of mania overcomes them. So it is with Violetta. And remember, I asked you to remember that melody that we heard so faintly in the overture. Violetta agrees. She says, tell your daughter that uh, somebody who was a victim that could not overcome the strife of their own life gave her own in order that she could have the life that she desired. And the father says, uh, embrace me. And uh, they become 
like a father and a daughter for a short moment. Verdi was constantly writing incredible scenes for fathers and daughters. Gilda and Rigoletto, uh, although they're not blood father and daughter, this scene between Germain and Violetta, Abigail and Nabucco in Nabucco, it, it runs through all of his work. And uh, this theme really obsesses him. He plums it to every depth. So Violetta consents to the sacrifice. She decides the only way she can convince Alfredo that she's leaving him and have him believe her is to write him a letter saying that uh, she, she's gone forever and uh, she's, she's going back to her old life. She's going to Flores for a party. And um, he comes in and discovers her as she's writing this letter. She is tremendously flustered. He's anxious because he knows his father is coming, but he thinks it's just to see him. And finally, Violetta bursts out, love me, Alfredo, love me as much as I love you. And suddenly that soft theme we heard in the overture becomes away and leaves. Alfredo's father comes in, tries to sing to Alfredo, come back to Provence where all of your family has been so sad since you left. Alfredo can't even hear him. All he's thinking about is, is that party because he's seen the letter and uh, Alfredo rushes off swearing revenge. So in the next act, we're at this party at Flora's house. And remember I told you that the man who was keeping Violetta was Baron Dufol. Uh, Baron Dufol is there and challenges Alfredo to a duel, ultimately. And uh, meanwhile, uh, Violetta pleads with Alfredo to, to understand, but of course he can't understand because he's missing the correct information. So in front of all the party guests, uh, he has put together all the money that he has spent uh, in his life with Violetta and he throws it at her. And um, she is so stricken by this that she just faints and uh, everybody around her is supporting her. And of course, everybody in the audience is supporting her. So Verdi is achieving his goal. We feel that the most sympathetic character on this stage is Violetta and that she is wronged by society with its beliefs. Now notice Verdi does not try to write an ending where uh, Alfredo and Violetta run away or you know something modern happens. There, there was no therapy then. So <laughs> all that could happen was that the heroine would die, but our love for her by the time she dies is so great that we sympathize and we think twice before we condemn someone like her. And this is exactly what Verdi wanted. Footnote. He actually did marry Giuseppina Streponi, <laughs> and they lived together for over 55 years, uh, all in all. So uh, theirs was a lifetime relationship. But uh, this opera, La Traviata, was composed six years before that wedding ever took place. And Verdi wanted to make sure that he would tell the world on his own terms how things should be uh, before he chose to do something else. I don't know exactly how Giuseppina Streponi felt about all this. That is not documented. That would be very interesting. So back to our story. Um, Violetta has left 
is back in her own house and is dying. Uh, Alfredo comes to see her, but of course, it's too late. And even Alfredo's father comes to see her. And he has decided that he will forgive everything. He will do what Verdi wanted him to do and um, pardon them and let them marry and everything will be fine. But of course, this is a 19th century tragedy. Violetta dies before any of that can happen. Now, when a Verdi hero or heroine dies, I don't know why, the orchestra always goes into D-flat major. <laughs> so, you know, we're wandering through a number of keys. Ah, sorry. We're not anywhere near D-flat yet. Uh-oh. As soon as she hears D-flat, she should know it's over. <laughs> and she suddenly has one of those tubercular attacks where she starts feeling incredible energy, and boom, she's gone. So it, it ends in the most dramatic possible way, but in, in the same way, you know, a Gilda is, is in that sack, and she's singing, Lassu in vicino alla madre. And Rigoletto's thinking, oh, it's D-flat major, she's going to be <laughs> So always, 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 the men too, the men too, in Don Carlo. Don Carlo is the biggest opera Verdi ever wrote, and it's also the only opera he wrote originally in French. Some of his operas he translated into French after the Italian version, but Don Carlo was written in French, and um, he, he translated it later into Italian. So um, Rodrigo dies for his country and for his best friend, Don Carlo, and he's in D-flat. And he goes. So always, always, always. It's, it's Verdi's way of saying heaven is in D-flat major. And this happens over and over. Verdi wrote these sacrifice operas. And what's happening in Italy? Finally, some kind of political movement toward a united Italy. This movement was called the Risorgimento, the rising again of the Italian nation. And Verdi was one of the figureheads of the movement. Of course, he was not as politically active as Garibaldi and Cavaur, but his music reached hundreds of thousands of people. He was beloved, and the acronym Verdi, V-E-R-D-I, became Vittorio Emanuele Re d'Italia. So uh, Verdi really stood for the movement of the Risorgimento. Now, by 1861, all of Italy united, except the Vatican, which came along in 1870. So Verdi begins to shift the emphasis of what his operas are about. I would tell you that any great opera composer writes about the same few themes over and over. Mozart, obsessed with will people be faithful to each other. Puccini, obsessed with women who love so much that they sacrifice themselves. Uh, Richard Strauss, obsessed with the, the happiness of a nuclear family. 
um, Wagner, redemption, redemption for men uh, through, through the love of a selfless woman. So uh, these composers find something and they rewrite it in a dozen ingenious ways. But with Verdi, first it is that Italy becomes a united country and then this other theme of uh, fathers and daughters and then uh, sacrifice. But toward the end of his life, he begins to obsess on a different theme. Now, Verdi and Giuseppina Streponi had a wonderful and long relationship together. But Verdi met a soprano named Teresa Stolz. And Teresa Stolz could still sing and was very much at the forefront of Verdi's work. He cast her in all of the big pieces that he was writing in later life. We will never know, and we don't need to know, if Verdi and Teresa Stolz had an affair or what, but they were certainly so intimate with each other in many ways. And Giuseppina handled this as graciously as a human being could, and I think, to be fair, so did Teresa Stolz. But Verdi knew what jealousy was, and the last five or six operas he wrote are all about human jealousy. Okay. So, Un Ballo in Maschera. This is the only opera Verdi wrote that is set in the United States. <laughs> and this is by accident. Uh, in 1792, Gustav III was killed by his most beloved cabinet minister, his most trusted confidant, and, whose name was Enkerstrom. And Verdi wrote this great opera about Gustav III and Enkerstrom called A Masked Ball. Well, the censor did not want an opera in which the crowned head of a European country was murdered. So Verdi said, can we set it somewhere completely insignificant, like the United States? <laughs> and that was fine. So in the version that Verdi's audiences saw, and that indeed you can still see in many places, uh, the hero is the governor of Boston. <laughs> right? Who cares? It's like in uh, Janet. You'll love this. In in, uh, in Puccini's opera Manon Lescaut, he says the final act is set in the desert in Louisiana <laughs> because it's so far away. Who cares? When Puccini got around to writing the Girl of the Golden West, he knew a lot more about what it was actually like over in the New World. So Verdi's writing this opera, a masked ball, and whether it's set in Sweden or in the United States, the protagonists are the, the, the ruler, his most trusted uh, counselor, and then the wife of the trusted counselor. Now you can guess, this is opera, what's gonna happen? The wife falls in love with the ruler, and the trusted counselor decides that he's going to murder the ruler because naturally, you know, it's, whether it's Sweden or the United States, it's really all Italy. And in Italy, uh, there, there's, there's crimes that are real crimes, and then there's crimes of passion, which are completely forgivable and understandable. <laughs> I, you think I'm kidding about that. that, that, that there's a whole different morality about crimes that are committed because of adultery. So the music of Ballo in Maschera, represents a huge step for Verdi. Even in the great operas, Rigoletto and Il Trovatore and La Traviata, and they are great operas, Verdi relies pretty much on the number formula. You know, there's the beautiful quartet, and then there's the aria. So starting with Un Ballo in Maschera, 
all of this starts to blend together. Now, what famous composer born in the same year as Verdi do you think he might have begun to get this idea from? Other than Richard Wagner, yes. So Wagner, although Verdi and Wagner kept a very formidable distance between one another, Verdi and Wagner did, uh, of course, keep tabs on what the other one was doing. And uh, you know, Wagner always said, uh, when it comes to the works of Verdi, it is better to say nothing, <laughs> which was <laughs> and Verdi's comment about Wagner was, why does he always try to fly when it is more sensible to walk? <laughs> so neither one was willing to say the other was less than a genius, but merely that they differed so completely in their approach to theater and to music. And yet, Wagner did begin to influence Verdi. So, in this ballo in Maschera, in the overture, we hear this conspirator's theme. Uh, the theme comes back frequently when the conspirators against the ruler's life come on the scene. Or we have uh, the, the theme of uh, well, let's call him Renato, or Enkerstrom, the, the trusted aide. Uh, and, and he's singing, uh, was it you, my ruler, in whom I put all my trust, who has soiled my beautiful, beloved wife? And then immediately, uh, we talk about the wife, we hear, So uh, Verdi paints a picture of this pure, chaste woman who um, he, he loves. I mean, Verdi loves every woman heroine except the ones he sets up to be villains, like Amneris in Aida uh, or, or Eboli in Don Carlo. So uh, we can tell from that melody that uh, Emilia is not at fault, that Verdi places the entire blame on the, the ruler. And, um, we know this, too, because whenever Verdi completely sympathizes with the heroine, he has a solo woodwind instrument sing a plaintive solo before she sings. This is in English horn. This is what uh, Amelia sings. She, she's so pure that she doesn't want to love the ruler. So she goes to the gallows to pluck an herb at midnight that's going to cure her of all of her love. Unfortunately, the ruler overhears that this is her plan and shows up uh, to meet her there, so she's not able to uh, cure all of her love. And the opera ends tragically, as you would expect. But for Verdi, this is a huge jump, this ballo in maschera. And then he writes, La Forza del Destino, which has an even more pervasive, we can't call it a leitmotif, theme that goes through the opera, the, theme, the, the force of destiny. Here is destiny expressed musically by Verdi. Destiny 
in this case, is set off in the very opening scene of the opera. This is another one of those Spanish plots that you might think is a little stretching of your credibility. The lover shows up at his beloved's window, comes into the room, her father comes in at just that moment, and in order to show that he and his lover are blameless, he, the, the, the lover who's coming through the window drops his pistol on the ground to show that he has no hostility, and the pistol accidentally goes off, wounding the father fatally, and in fact, he dies on the spot. <laughs> so this is the force of destiny, right? Like Il Trovatore, the music is the point in this opera. And I don't know how to say this another way, but the plot almost has to be beyond the realm of the believably human for the music to go beyond the realm of believable human emotion. And Verdi has it in his musical soul to do that. So he must be forgiven these occasional plots that are the basis for such fabulous music. He writes now the giant uh, Don Carlo. And I, I sang you a little bit about uh, what, what uh, Rodrigo sings when, when he's dying. But Don Carlo is full of giant characters. And Don Carlo is, of course, not some hack librettist's work, but it's a play by Schiller. So it's a wonderful source that Verdi has to work with. And there's the uh, Princess Elisabetta, who is so noble. How do you express noble in music? Well, you have long arching lines that span over a twelfth instead of melodies that move by small intervals. So while uh, even such a wonderful character as Gilda might sing, Tutte le feste al tempio, she's contained. Uh, Elisabetta will sing, So Verdi's creating more mature characters by using different melodic vocabulary. In this same opera, Elisabeth thinks that she's going to be married to Don Carlo at the beginning of the opera, and they fall in love. And just as they're about to ride off into the sunset. Of course, it's only act one, so you know something's going to happen. <laughs> the king, who is four times her age, decides he's going to marry her. And of course, that spells trouble for everybody, not least of all the king, who, in Verdi's very sympathetic portrayal, realizes that Elizabeth has never loved me. Uh, you've heard this too. Ella jamai mamo No quel cor chiuse a me Amor per me non ha, amor per me non ha. Dormirò sol nel manto mio rega. I will sleep alone in my royal mantle. So all this opera populated by very sympathetic characters. Uh, Eboli also loves Don Carlo. Um, although she's having an affair with the king. It's an opera, okay. And, uh, and she sings finally, uh, my beauty has turned against me. It is like a fatal gift. It is like a don fatale. So she sings, uh, let me sing it. 
fatale, o don cruel, che in suo furor mi fece il cielo. Notice again the uh, extensive intervals and leaps that show emotion in a way Verdi did not in his earlier operas. Uh, and then she sings a prayer. To... Again, Verdi is able within a short space to show many different facets of his characters musically. He's not using the traditional cavatina and cabaletta form at all anymore. That he has left far behind him. So these operas now have such a, a greater depth of characterization than the operas he wrote 25 years before. Uh, Verdi also wrote an opera called Simon Boccanegra, which is a beautiful opera, but not one that Verdi uh, was satisfied with. So several years after he'd written Simon Boccanegra, he was looking for somebody to write the libretto for him again, to rework the opera. Now, he had worked with Francesco Maria Piave, who wrote uh, the, the Traviata and the, the Masked Ball, and he'd written with Camarano, the, the Salvatore Camarano had written Lucia di Lamormur for Donizetti, but he also wrote um, the libretto for Il Trovatore, and um, I said Solera was the librettist for Nabucco. But, but Verdi wanted somebody new. Well, there was a great poet in Italy, uh, 30 years younger than Verdi, by the name of Arrigo Boito. But Verdi would not go anywhere near Arrigo Boito, because Arrigo Boito, with other young poet friends, had a newsletter. And in this newsletter, they said, it is time that somebody cleaned off the soiled altar of Italian art, which has been sullied by so much traditional music. Verdi took this as a personal insult, understandably. And when Boito's name was brought up, he said, no, 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 that is not somebody we're going to even think about. But Ricordi, his publisher, who was a very smart man, realized that that would be the partnership for Verdi. So one day for tea, suddenly Boito shows up and Giuseppina Streponi is a party to this conspiracy because she wants Giuseppe to keep writing operas. And so Boito arrives, and finally he and Verdi agree that he's going to rewrite the Simon Boccanegra. And he does a fabulous job. And Verdi is pretty impressed by this. So they have a big triumph with the revised Simon Boccanegra. And meanwhile, Verdi gets a big commission to write an opera for the Opera House in Cairo. People sometimes say it's for the opening of the Suez Canal, but I learned that's not really true. So it's a great story, but he didn't really write. But this was the opera Aida, set in ancient Egypt. A great opera, not with a libretto by Arrigo Boito, but by uh, um, Ghislanzoni. Uh, so uh, Aida has all of the hallmarks of Verdi opera. And the theme underlying the whole thing is jealousy. And the heroine, Aida, is portrayed by the great soprano Teresa Stoltz, the cause of all this jealousy. So Teresa Stoltz does a great job. Aida brings Verdi more money than he ever dreamed existed. And uh, he is ready to retire, a wealthy man. Then 
Alessandro Manzoni, a famous poet, dies, and Verdi decides he's going to write a requiem mass. And I think in some senses, he believed it was a requiem for himself as well. By this time, he was well over 60. And you, you feel in this work that Verdi is trying to draw together everything uh, that he knew, all the counterpoint from all those fugues before breakfast. And everything works its way into that mass, the most beautiful sacred music, but also drama. It's the fusion of a mass and an opera. Um, you know, in, uh, in this mass, you hear, I don't know if I can do that. There, there would be people who would have said that was inappropriate for sacred music. But Verdi uh, was Verdi, so he could get away with everything, and he did. And this, this Requiem Mass is as powerful as any opera. Oh, and the soprano soloist was Teresa Stolz. Yeah, so now Verdi's ready to retire, and Ricordi, who has made billions of lira off of Verdi, uh, is not ready for him to retire. So he goes to Boito, and he says... Do you think that we could persuade Verdi to write another opera? And Boito says, well, it would have to be something that really meant a lot to him. Now, Verdi, all of his life, had dreamed of writing an opera of King Lear. He had this project up his sleeve for 30 years. Um, spoiler, it never happened. <laughs> there is no Re Lear by Giuseppe Verdi. But uh, Boito thinks, what about Othello? Now, I told you, Othello has that English sound that Italians don't say. So it's Otello. Verdi's opera, Otello, given to him by Boito. At first, Verdi, very reluctant to even consider writing another opera. But he starts to look at Boito's poetry, and it's like nothing he's ever set by Piave or Solera. And he starts to have ideas, and ideas lead to more ideas, and pretty soon he's telling Boito how to write the libretto. And the two of them are off. So it takes several years, but Verdi produces Otello in a completely new form. There are no arias, there are no set pieces of any kind. It rolls along from one thing to another. It starts in no key at all, with a gigantic storm at sea, and Otello finally comes in, and he's uh, the biggest tenor voice that uh, Verdi has ever written for, like a Wagnerian tenor, imagine that. And uh, he, he's clearly a great hero, a great noble, uh, but of course, what's Otello all about? Jealousy. So uh, Iago is this incredible character that Verdi creates. He's not a sneering villain at all. He's the most sophisticated gentleman until, of course, he's alone on the stage. And then, as in Shakespeare, he tells everybody in the audience, I am a villain because we are all essentially worthless and I'm the only one honest enough to admit it and live by my creed. Okay, so we have uh, Iago, this nihilist character, and then we have the beautiful Desdemona because it's an opera. Again, the character Desdemona can be much more fully developed than in Shakespeare's play. And we have gorgeous love music, unlike Macbeth, where there was nothing. So now Verdi can write a Shakespeare opera with a love story that's all about jealousy. And uh, the 
music that Otello and Desdemona sing together when they're having their love duets is very Wagnerian in some ways. The, the words un bacio mean a kiss, and un altro bacio or ancora un bacio means another kiss. Okay. that were you un altro and this is the end of act 1 as otello and desdemona go off very much in love but at the end of the whole opera when otello has smothered desdemona to death because he's convinced that she has been unfaithful to him with cassio he kisses her dead body with the same passion. Self dies. So this fantastic opera is Verdi's end to his career. It's a gigantic success, not just in Italy, which is now Italy, but all over the world. And Verdi is so happy to settle down in the villa at Santa Gata, which he's built on the millions he's earned through these fantastic operas that he's performed all over Europe. And uh, just as he's really ready to, um, you know, turn in the career. Uh, he gets a letter from Boito saying, Otello was the great way in which to finish your great career. But, <laughs> ma, even better would be to finish it with the greatest operatic comedy that has ever, that will ever be written, and that would be Falstaff. So he puts together uh, parts from Henry IV, Part II, and Merry Wives of Windsor. And he creates the story of Mary of Wives of Windsor with, you know, details trimmed out. Operas have to be trimmed considerably from novels or plays. And adds the elements from Henry IV where Falstaff is not just a laughable character, but a noble and lovable character. So he creates, uh, Boito creates this Falstaff who is uh, larger than life, not just in size, but also um, as a human being. And uh, he creates this very lovable Falstaff. And Verdi, of course, you all know, decides finally he's going to write this opera at the age of 80. And uh, it is uh, it's extraordinary, because every bar of this opera um, has things that are unexpected. If you know all of Verdi's work and you hear Falstaff, you think, uh, uh, that sounds a little like Verdi, but it's so modern and the orchestration is so colorful and uh, you know there are many hallmarks of Verdi but you can tell that he's completely transformed from that composer who wrote Va Pensiero 60 years before not 60 sorry about that uh, 50, 50 years before so um, Falstaff 
of course, uh, it starts in a very good-natured way. And then we hear, well, you know what? Even though it's going by fast, that's the Tristan and Isolde chord. If it were, uh, let me find the right key. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just transposing. Um, if if that chord were in another context, it would have that uh, Wagnerian seriousness. But Verdi casually tosses it off, and uh, in the course of the first two minutes of the opera, we hear it in five different places. So he has absorbed uh, the contemporary language around him without sounding like another composer. He still sounds like Verdi. So. Verdi, as I told you, wrote fugues every morning before breakfast. How does Verdi choose to end his last opera? He writes a nine-part fugue. And uh, he said very clearly to Boito, I want this to be a comic fugue. He even said, I don't know what a comic fugue is, but that's what it's got to be. <laughs> so at the end of Falstaff, with all of the mistaken identity and the uh, assignations and uh, the women playing tricks on Falstaff, uh, and the, the double marriage at the end, uh, he, he emerges uh, victorious and he says, if it weren't for me and my wit, where would the rest of you be? You know? and, and so he begins this fugue, um, Tutto nel mondo è burro, l'uomo è nato burroni, burroni, burroni. Everything in life is a joke. People are born to jest. And uh, so these voices add in, and there's this grand ending, uh, and a grand ending to Verdi's career. He, he wrote this opera in 1893, like I say, when he was 80 years old, uh, a, a sensational success. And after this, there were no more operas. There were some more pieces. But uh, Verdi's final work was that he took his many millions, and he established the Casa de Riposo in Milano for all of the retired musicians. If you've seen Quartet, uh, the Casa di Riposo was the prototype for that, uh, founded and subsidized entirely by Verdi. And his stipulation to Ricordi was that after his death, all of the royalties from his operas would go to keep the Casa di Riposo alive, and so it's still very much alive 112 years later. So that is the sort of person that, that Verdi was. Now, at Verdi's funeral, uh, there was a young cellist who had played in the premiere of Otello named Arturo Toscanini. And he conducted a chorus of 820 people singing Va Pensiero. But Verdi's funeral was attended not by 820 people, but by more people than any funeral, state or otherwise, that has ever happened in Italy, over 100,000 people. <laughs> they were lined up, up and down the streets and uh, as the Verdi cortege went by, they all started to sing Va Pensiero. <laughs> so we're going to Va Pensiero. Y'all. I learned that word from you, Jen. Y'all. <laughs> Verdi's died, and you're going to honk it out, right? La, 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 we'll be fine. <laughs> Va pensiero, sul 
Thank you all so much. Thank you very much. Grazie.